Today's gospel is Luke 8, 1 through 15. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up, and it choked the plants. Still other seeds fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secret of of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but... To others I speak in parables, so that those seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed of the word the seed is the word of the God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground have no root. They believe for a while, but in time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as soon as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and and they do not mature. But the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by preserving persevering, produce, produce a crop. Gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's wonderful to be here with you to reflect on uh, this parable. And uh, you notice as you read the parables um, or have them read for you, uh, in such a lovely way, uh, you notice that there is a tension of great simplicity and great complexity in these parables. Topically, at least, the parables are only about a handful of things, and one of them is the kingdom of God. But if you listen to classical music, you know that one piece of classical music can be played in an endless variety of ways, and you can see depths that are brought out by different conductors and different orchestras, and Jesus' parables seem like that. Many of them are about this concept that we read or that she read, the kingdom of God. And we could spend many, many sermons just talking about that one thing, what is the kingdom of God? But for our purposes this morning, if you would think about it as, the, as God's personal, His 
political, his physical answer to the deepest longings of the human heart. It's his answer to what is wrong with the world. Now, I think we're far enough removed from Peter Jackson's movies from the early 2000s where I can use a Lord of the Rings illustration and not have a collective eye roll across the congregation. During those years, if you stepped into church, it was like Gandalf and Aragorn and Frodo. Might as well have been the Holy Trinity. Everything kind of connected to Middle Earth and to Lord of the Rings. But if you think about it, Middle Earth is in many ways a dramatization of this concept of the kingdom of God and how it comes and how it doesn't and what it looks like and how it's perceived because when you're dropped into Middle Earth, you are acquainted with this story of something has gone terribly, horribly wrong. Something has been lost. But there are these stories of the old days and how things used to be, and they're told longingly by elves and by wizards, about the way things were and the way things ought to be. And the hopes of the world are bound up in this great king who's going to come and set things right. And even at a deeper level, if you think about it, it's absurd that elves would hope in a human king coming to set things right. These guys live thousands of years, and yet they want, they're looking for this human king, this mortal who lives a short span, who's going to come and set things right, the return of the king. And Tolkien says, in real life, certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. We all long for it, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with the sense of exile. This tension is like a wound in all of us, and all other wounds whisper of it. You see, the kingdom of God, as Jesus talks about it, doesn't just come to deliver personal forgiveness and personal individual salvation or forgiveness of sins. It doesn't come simply to grant you access to God, but it comes to bring an answer to the woundedness of the world and the woundedness of our own hearts. The kingdom of God is the story, the description of how God's power enters into the world to heal the world's social, economic, political, psychological, and yes, spiritual woundedness. But many miss it. We miss it. Because it's not how we expect kingdoms to work. Jesus' kingdom comes in a radically different way than the kingdoms that we experience and either thrive under or suffer under. Normally, earthly kingdoms come in by blunt force, by coercion, by acquiring and gathering power in people. But Jesus' kingdom comes in by hearing, it comes in by seeing, by listening. And in fact, as Pete prayed, by giving up power. You see, in those days when Alexander came to town, when Genghis Khan Khan came to town, everybody knew it. They knew well in advance he was coming. And when they came, they broke stuff and they killed people. 
and you were either in their kingdom or you were dead. There was no two ways about it. There's no third way either. Overwhelm, overwhelming force, straight line power, kingdoms of the sword. But Jesus describes his kingdom not with a sword metaphor, but with a seed metaphor and with a soil metaphor. Kingdoms of the sword come in suddenly, they come in coercively, but kingdoms of a seed, they grow gradually, they grow organically. A sword destroys, a seed grows. A sword makes things ugly, but a seed can make things beautiful. It can bring new life. Okay, you say, but how will that fix my problems now? Maybe I don't want a seed. Maybe I want a sword. I want someone to deal with this person that's harming me. I want someone to deal immediately with what's going wrong in my life. How is a king who is tortured and killed going to right the things that are wrong in my life? A kingdom where you find yourself, you find life by laying it down? How does that help anyone? Me or the person who is physically, socially, politically oppressed? Well, this would have seemed as naive and as counterinstinctive to the original audience as it does to us now. Because they were asking, how do we deal with these Romans, the latest in a long line of political oppressors? How does giving up our lives further get them off our property, get them out of our yard? I was praying this morning, and as I was taking a break and watering my grass, and I found myself realizing that as I prayed for in town, and just the physical challenges that we have, the structural challenges, money challenges. And as I prayed about my own life and my family and so forth, as I imagined answers, all of them were immediate. All of them were tangible. All of them were as if God just immediately stepped into my life and fixed it. He sewed up the problem and made everything well now. But according to Jesus, according to this parable, the kingdom of God, as it approaches, as it grows, it can look small. It can seem very insignificant, and it's not always obvious, like the growth of a seed. This parable is not just about seeds. It's also, if you notice, about soils and about the kinds of soils that respond to and receive or reject the kingdom of God in the way that it is offered. And you hear, we read that large crowds are following Jesus. So at least initially, they're not thrown off by this kind of cognitive dissonance. This doesn't seem to work, Jesus. This seems impractical. No, large crowds are following. They want to hear more. They want to know what this rabbi has to say. And they're coming to him from town after town, but he's telling them a very pessimistic parable. It's not very good PR if you want to build a kingdom, if you want to build a movement. Seth Godin, who is a, a blogger, a marketer, a business person, he says this, the easiest customers to get are almost always never the best ones. If you're considering word-of-mouth stability and lifetime value, it's almost always true 
that the easier it is to get someone's attention, the less it's worth. For those of you in marketing, you're welcome. I can footnote that for you if you want. I love him and his perspective on things. But what's going on here, Luke is telling us, is that Jesus is saying, I've got your attention. That's not hard. It's not hard to draw a crowd. But there's four types of listeners here. And three out of the four are not going to be left in this crowd. They're going to, of their own accord, choose to go their own way. The first one is this hard soil or the path. And this one works on a couple of different levels, which we won't belabor. But I always find it amusing to walk in a park or if you walk in a college quad and you see that there's just dozens of different sidewalks going every which way. But the architect never anticipates all of the ways that humans want to travel. And there's always these hard-packed paths right through vegetation and right across these beautifully curated and cared-for lawns. Because why would we walk four feet out of our way to go around the light pole? I'm going to go right here. And it's as if every architect that's ever planned a park has not learned this lesson. Why, doesn't th- why don't things grow there? It's because foot after foot is stepping on it, and the ground becomes hard and packed. And even if a seed falls on that path, it gets kicked off, and it can't take root. It also works on the level of the people that are going on that path. They don't mean to be on the path for very long. The path is a means to an end. They're trying to get somewhere. Constant motion after the bell rings on a college campus. Have you ever seen that? It's just like ants moving everywhere. Constant motion, very little reflection. Just, I want to get to my next destination. And so we may say, I want to know truth. I want to find and develop spiritual maturity. I want stillness in my life. But if your life is in constant motion, it's not going to happen. If you're always going and you never arrive, then the seed of the kingdom never has the chance to germinate, to take root. And no matter how many times the seed is thrown in your life, if you can't stop, if you can't slow down, it's not going to take root. That's the first kind of soil, the hard-packed path. The second is this idea of a rocky type of soil where there's, it seems, initial joy, initial exuberance. It's like the crowds that initially gather around Jesus and then dissipate over time. The heat of trials, the heat of difficulty comes, and we don't have the root system to sustain us. And what we have to realize is that most really deep joys take effort. They take time to cultivate. You have to develop a root system in order to thrive above ground. You see this in that all thriving marriages reach that point in marriage where you're faced with a decision. And every athlete that wants to hone their craft, every artist that wants to be better, all of these encounter this moment, this place of decision where what is beyond is worth either pressing through that temptation to stop or to give it up. And I've hit that place in learning guitar. 
a hundred times, and I've always done something else. I've paid for the lessons, and then I don't practice. And so I know like six chords and can strum, and that's about it. But it's in those moments where you realize that the people that go beyond that have found and are trying to reach this lasting joy that they don't have in the initial moments. It's like listening to Bob Dylan. At first, it's like, what in the world? Who would listen to this? And then you get deep into the catalog, and you're like, oh, I get it. And there's this deep joy. How you respond in those moments, not just in the silly ones that I said, but in real challenging moments, reveals your deeper commitment. Where are you actually going? Not where do you say you're going. The third is the seed that grows but then is choked by weeds. And these are those of us, and we say this, even if we're moving, we often say this in practical ways day to day, that I believe that what I'm confessing here this morning, I actually believe and I want it to be true of my life. I believe that I have given God authority in my life, but except when it comes to this particular area, except when He asks me to sacrifice in this particular area. So what we're doing is we're sort of dabbling in an issue, in a religion that we say demands all of our life. We're dabbling in something whose primary confession is that Jesus is Lord. And we see this cognitive dissonance settle into our lives, and it's not fun. It's not comfortable, and it's hard to maintain that. This is the classic two masters conundrum, because what While other people may not notice it because you happen to show up regularly, you lead a community group, so forth, other people don't notice, but you do. And you know that in your most honest moments, what you say is most precious and most true and most deep about you is not really that at all. The first one hears and maybe responds, maybe believes, but can't stop long enough to let it germinate. The second one buys in but gives it up for greater loves. Both of those two soils, both of those two responses can be reasonably happy in life, but the third one can't. The third one generally at some point becomes miserable because at some level you know that what you're doing is just a con. It's just a charade. You keep coming, but it's out of duty, maybe. It's out of a religious hangover from your youth. It's out of fear. I'm not sure if this is all true, but I better show up just in case. Or maybe you just can't think of anything better to do on a Sunday morning. And if that's the case, come on. (laughs) You live in Oregon. I just finished sabbatical. There's a lot of good things that you could be doing on Sunday morning if this isn't really what you're about, if this doesn't really matter to you, then why keep showing up? Let's talk. I've been there. We've all been there. What is beyond just showing up on a Sunday morning that you're trying to move to? Where are you going, and where is this church going? Finally and quickly, the fourth one is the good soil. This is the hero of the story, right? 
the good soil or the open heart. And these are those who go beyond simply grasping the meaning of the words. For that is true of all of them. The three that eventually fall away or walk away, they come to understand what Jesus is saying, and that's why they walk away. The fourth one understands as well, but chooses to stay. God's kingdom has room in their life to take root and to grow. So, how does a hard-packed path, a rocky heart, or a closed heart that is choked by weeds, how does that sort of heart make the transition to an openness, to flexibility, to malleability to God? Very briefly, if you're the one that's always on the path, if your heart is hard-packed, we have to ask, not just once, but we have to ask, what are the roots of restlessness in my life? Where does that come from? Why am I always on the move? What keeps me endlessly striving and never arriving? Do I even know where I'm running to with all this motion? You know, church happens every single week, not because God wants to ruin your fun by taking away your two-day weekend. He only does that to pastors. Um, That's not why. It's why it's because you have to stop long enough for the seed to germinate. You have to stop long enough to engage in counter-rhythms of your life, to engage in the spiritual rhythms that worked, work counter to the rhythms that you run by all week long, the rhythms of me and mine and more. If I can just reach this, then I will be serious about my spiritual life. If I can get here in my financial life, then I can give more to this or that cause. We have to stop long enough to question our motives and our movement during the week. We have to have moments of stillness, and hopefully this is part of that for you. If it's rocky soil, if you are sort of enthusiastic but you can't find the roots growing, it's a shallow heart, do the hardships of life. Does failure, does loss, does setbacks, do setbacks, do they turn you towards God or do they tend to move you away and cause you to doubt whether He is in your life and whether He is real? In Jesus' darkest moment, that is approaching Passion Week, approaching the cross, He goes to the garden. He goes into solitude. He goes into stillness. He goes into his Father's arms. For some reason in Jesus, because he understood the kingdom and how it moves, his suffering did not invalidate his hope. In fact, his hope gave meaning to his suffering. And he went to God. He went into the Father's arms. He was embraced. He went into prayer. You can't just do that once, but that's the movement. That's the posture. 
the weeds, if they're choking you, we have to ask, what is our non-negotiable in life that is running counter to what we say we really want? What, what is the ultimate thing that we're striving? What keeps us on that treadmill? Where is the hidden axis in my heart that I'm revolving around constantly? And friends, the parable doesn't invite you to consider having an axis or having an ultimate thing or having a king. All of these soils you see are ruled by something. All of us have a king already. All of us have an axis. The question is, is it leading to health? Is it leading to renewal? Is it leading to the good of my neighbor? Or is it just ceaseless striving? Jesus, you see, wants to rule your heart, and He wants all of you, not because He is greedy, not to ruin your fun, but He wants to heal you, and He wants to heal me. He wants to heal our division and our disunity, and He wants to heal ultimately our exile from ourself and from the person that we were made to be. And that's why as you experience God's kingdom and it takes root, you actually become more of yourself, not less. He wants to heal the deep woundedness of humanity and the deep wounds of the world by making you individual, making you whole as a part of that. And our hope as we see as we move to this table that at the center of God's kingdom, at the center of Jesus' kingdom is not a sort of coercion. You better do this or else. It's not a sort of coercion at all. It's an offer. And the offer comes in the form of a cross. It comes in the form of his own death. And he says that he is the wounded healer, the only one that can really make you fully whole. And the exile, your own, and the exile of the whole world ends in him. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe these huge, gigantic concepts. Help us to take just a little piece of this and to identify in our own hearts patterns of hardness, patterns where we are choked, patterns where we are disunited by greater loves that leave us hungry and thirsty. And help us to acknowledge that and get some help, even either from a church leader or from a friend. And help us, help this church to be a place of healing, not of coercion, not of force, not of power, but of sacrifice and giving. Help us to lose our life for those in our city and those next to us in the pew. In Jesus' name, amen.